Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139? Psalm 139, and we'll go ahead and read the entire psalm just to get it solidified in our minds. Psalm 139, part of the inspired text, the superscription here says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for a moment. Our Father, we come to you with the words of this magnificent psalm fresh in our minds. And we pray, Lord, that this day the word of God which you have promised will never return void. The word of God which you have said is a double-edged sword. It is sharp and it divides soul and spirit. It divides true motives from faults. We pray that this day the Spirit of God would use your word to divide our souls, to show us our true selves, and to proclaim truth that is glorious and heavenly and life-changing. And we pray this all for the glory of Christ, our Creator and our Savior. Amen. It seems like that on Mother's Day, 
In the past few years, I rarely get the luxury of just preaching a nice message on mommies. And, and I asked the Lord for this, but that's not a prayer he seems to want to answer very often because there always seems to be some issue that pops up that needs to be given a voice. One of the roles of the preaching pastor, and I, I believe in this, is to give voice to your own hearts, to say aloud what needs to be said, and to interpret our world through the only authoritative lens and that is the lens of the revelation of God in his scriptures. I read this on Monday and I thought, oh no, there goes my Mother's Day sermon again. But this week's big breaking news was the leaked potential Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade, which was the legalization of abortion back in 1973, to return to the states their constitutional powers to make decisions of this magnitude and We've addressed this issue before, and yes, we've done it on Mother's Day. And My point today is to not, not really to try to prove from Scripture that abortion is a heinous and wicked sin of murder, although Psalm 139 we just read clearly shows that life begins at, at conception. We, we get this. We understand this. This isn't an issue we need to debate within the walls of our church. In fact, we might note that abortion activists aren't really trying to make their old arguments anymore. They're not really trying to make the argument that a fetus isn't a person anymore. A basic scientific knowledge has proven that to be ridiculous. They simply want to be able to be sexually immoral and have no consequences whatsoever for sin. That's the motivation. My point today, though, is to eventually show you that while we will rejoice if Roe versus Wade is overturned, that will not spell the end of spiritual wickedness in our nation. It won't cause the end of that which is evil. And that while changing laws might abate the judgment of God for a short period of time, changing laws will not make one bit of eternal difference. Not one bit. And to show us this, I'd like to work together through Psalm 139. Now, as we just read, Psalm 139 is really one of our most theologically packed and and rich psalms when it comes to the character of God, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-present. And like many portions of Scripture, Psalm 139 is set up in a mirror image structure called by theologians a chiastic structure where the uh, the ending mirrors the beginning. And in this case, the middle sections mirror one another. And you might recall the purpose of this structure. We've talked about it before. This type of mirror image structure is to point out the central feature, to work your way toward the the high point, toward the climactic moment that the beginning and the ending essentially point to the middle. Now, why would God give a structure like this? In in our way of thinking about literature, we put the the climactic point at the end, right? That's where you you don't read a novel beginning in chapter 1 and end in in the last chapter and work your way to the middle. Why would God do this? I think one of the primary reasons God does this is that just until the past several hundred years, Scripture was primarily read aloud by the few to the many who didn't own a copy of the Bible. God designed Scripture to be heard. It is very It is very auditory. And so this mirror image structure that characterizes so many sections of Scripture, what it does is it creates a memorable structure in which all the major concepts are repeated and in the middle you see what the big idea is. And so I thought it would be interesting for our purposes today and just to 
add a little spice to our time together. We're going to honor that structure. We're going to set up our thoughts around it. And we're going to work from the beginning and the end all the way to the middle, which is the climactic portion. The horrific holocaust of abortions, both in our nation and around the world, makes it imperative that we look to the only source of truth, the only source of objective truth, from and about God. And that is the scriptures themselves, because at its core, abortion is one thing. It is a refusal to worship God. It is a refusal to obey God. That's what it boils down to. So we're going to work our way from the outside to the middle, And the way I'd like to do this is I'm going to show you a sequence of facts about God that lead us to one inescapable conclusion, which is the central part of the psalm. And so we'll do a series of because statements followed by the conclusion, a then statement. And then just to make sure we cover our bases, I'm going to follow up with two twists, two surprises at the end. So just to be clear what we're doing, we're going to do a series of because statements and we're going to work our way to the middle which is a then statement. And then we'll do two twists, two surprises that are really important for us to understand this psalm. So we're going to look at a sequence of facts about God that lead to this inescapable conclusion. Seven because statements that will lead us to a then statement. So here's our first because statement. So we're really starting a really, really long sentence here. That because, first of all, because God never gives privacy. Because God never gives privacy. You'll immediately notice notice the mirror image of the first and the last part of the psalm. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then look down at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Verse 1 says that God has searched King David's heart, that he does know David's heart. And verse 23 is an invitation to do so. The heart of the true follower of God desires to be tested, desires to be tried, desires to be known because he desires purity of thought. He wants God's thoughts only. One of the major foundations of Roe versus Wade was the Supreme Court decision that the state of Texas had violated Norma McCorvey, that's that's Miss Rowe, had violated her, quote, right to privacy. That was the basis for the decision. And this decision wasn't based on the Constitution of the United States, but rather on basically what the justices thought the Constitution would say if it addressed the topic. In other words, it was based on imagined words. That if the matter had in fact been by, uh, addressed by the, the Constitution, this is what it would have said. One legal explanation clarifies this, quote, that putting the right to have an abortion in a fictitious privacy zone meant Roe got faded for big problems in the future, meaning it basically was an illegal law. And we're seeing that come about now. But the fact of the matter is that, that law of any kind is only legitimate, listen carefully, law of any kind is only legitimate in as much as it protects God-given rights. The law itself has no authority to create rights. You catch that? In fact, even our own Declaration of Independence speaks of inalienable rights endowed by whom? By our Creator. He is the only one who gives rights. And the so-called right to sin without penalty or the right to sin in secret or the right to privacy 
in your sin is not one of those rights. That is not something given by God. In fact, it's just the opposite. David uses very specific language here to make certain we know the extent of God's comprehensive knowledge of every human being. Not only has God searched everything about you, He knows everything about you. Everything. On the flip side of that, sinful humanity loves the darkness because it's in darkness that we think we can hide sin. And so the first fact, because God never gives privacy, and we'll continue, because God knows your thoughts, because God knows your thoughts, now we get more specific about God's knowledge. God knows your very thoughts. We continue working our way toward the high point, the climactic middle of the psalm, Verses 2 and 3, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. This is a comprehensive way of saying that there is never a moment when you're out of the line of sight of God's sight and God's knowledge. You're never out. There's never a, a dark shadow. It's not like you can be in a spaceship and for a few minutes you're on the dark side of the moon and nobody can see you. That never happens. Some might say, well, sure, maybe God can see what I'm doing, but what I'm thinking? Yes, every single thought. And here's the sobering part. They're counted in the record books of heaven as actions. Your thoughts are counted as actions. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, that's a thought, with his brother, will be liable to judgment. He says a few verses later, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that's a thought, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As far as heaven is concerned, your thoughts are held accountable as actions. Verse 3 says, God is acquainted with all your ways. He knows your patterns. He knows your habits. He knows your hidden sins. He knows your internal refusals to obey Him. Nothing is hidden. And in fact, in our mirror image structure here, David wants to be very clear that his thoughts are for God. That his thoughts are in alignment with God's thoughts. That David serves the living God. And so the mirror image to verses 2 and 3 also speaks of thoughts. Verse 21 Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I know in our 21st century world, that kind of language is difficult for us to stomach. And some might even perhaps be tempted to judge God for putting this statement in Scripture. But what is David saying? He's saying that he is on the Lord's side, that those are where his thoughts are, that if someone is anti-God, then David is anti-that person. Now, I want to be very clear here. This is not a complete, total theology of how to view the lost person. From other, other places in Scripture, we obviously are compassionately to give them the gospel of the cross of Christ. And we understand that, but the fact is that according to Romans 5, the lost person is the enemy of God. And what is David saying? If somebody is your enemy, they're my enemy. David is declaring his loyalty to God even in his thoughts because God would know the hypocrisy of his thoughts anyway. So David is declaring loyalty. When it comes to abortion, we're polluted and inundated by 
catchphrases meant to be propaganda. Phrases like a, a woman's right to choose. Phrases like women's health care. Phrases like reproductive freedom. Well, the problem is, is that all the propaganda and all the catchphrases in the world, while fooling countless millions of people, will never and have never fooled God. Not one time. He knows the real thoughts. And it's on the basis of the real evil thoughts that judgment will be rendered. So we'll continue building our our sentence here. Because God never gives privacy, because God knows your thoughts, and because God knows your motives, God knows your motives. As we work inward toward the center here, we shift now to motives, and motives are revealed by words. Verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. David confesses that before he even gives expression to what's in his heart, before the words come out, God already knows them. I I know some of you are tempted to say, I know what you're going to say sometimes in a conversation. God is the only one who actually knows that. For David, this is very important. This is a worshipful acknowledgement that God is all-knowing even to the motives of his heart. Now, why would we connect words with motives? Because Jesus did. Jesus condemned the hypocritical religious leaders of Israel in Matthew 12, 34. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here in verse 4, there are two key concepts which are highlighted in the mirror image section. The first key concept, the words spoken by humans. And the second key concept, we see here even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, Hebrew, Yahweh, the name of God. So words spoken and the name of God. Those are the two key concepts there in verse 4. Here, David asserts that God knows his words, his motives. So the implication is that David submits to this. He's a worshiper of God because of this. And so he addresses God by his covenant name, Yahweh. O Lord, in your your Bible, all capitals, means that he's speaking to Yahweh. To take the name of the Lord is to claim to be a follower of God. Just like a wife takes the name of her husband. She's claiming to love and to honor him. We see the same two key concepts, words and the name of God, in verse 20. Only this time the words reveal the heart motive and the name of God is denigrated and put down. Verse 20, they, these are the enemies of God, they speak against you with malicious intent. There are the words, your enemies take your name in vain. The wicked speak against God with malicious intent. And just to be very clear, the Bible never defines anyone as neutral toward God. To be neutral in God's eyes is to be wicked, that there is no neutrality with God. And the enemies of God are taking God's name in vain. Now, what does that mean? I know we're brought up to mean that that, that use the name of God in a swear word or something like that. That's not the meaning. The, The third commandment speaks of claiming to belong to God, but it's not true. Claiming to be his, but it's not true. Claiming to be religious at a, at a reality level, but it's not true. Making a claim to be godly or to be doing godly things, and yet they're his enemies. Taking the name of God in vain is to pretend to be for God, but your actions prove otherwise. In the deception of false words, pro-abortion advocates have fooled millions of women into murdering their own babies. 
actively talking them into it because of the massive amount of money to be gained from the abortion industry. And now, in our culture today, you can read this in the news as recently as yesterday. Some of the language used to describe abortion are phrases like a God-given right or a sacred right, invoking the name of God, invoking the holiness of God to defend sin. What does this look like? I'll give you an example from a different issue. On the different issue of the sin of transgenderism, our own president recently tried to use scripture to take the name of God and use deceptive words to defend this sin. He actually quoted Genesis 1.27. He said, uh, quote, So God created man in his own image, unquote, to defend the sinful idea that human beings can just make up any number of genders that they want because we're made in the image of God. He didn't quote the rest of the verse. Male and female, he made them. (laughs) This is one of my favorites. Radical environmentalists have often quoted Revelation 7.3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, period. Leaving out the part that this is a heavenly command to four angels of God's judgment to not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until... 144,000 Jews have been sealed for salvation and service during the future time of the Great Tribulation. Then what are the angels to do? Harm the earth and the sea and the trees. Big time. Raining down the judgment of God. That's taking the name of God in vain. Claiming to speak for Him when in fact you were against Him. God knows the true motives for abortion. Despite what may be said, Even invoking religious language, God knows the true motives of the heart. It is selfishness. It is greed. In the case of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, it was the desire to decrease the number of black people in our nation. That was her desire. That's why she founded Planned Parenthood. And even today, 40% of all abortions are with precious little black babies. It was a desire for unfeathered sexual immorality without consequences. Many selfish, horrible desires. No matter what anyone involved with abortion says about it, God knows the true motives and he knows what the words really mean. Because God never gives privacy, because God knows your thoughts, because God knows your motives, we'll continue building our theology here, these statements, because God divides all people. Because God divides all people. Now, as we move closer here to the center, to the pinnacle of Psalm 139, this next mirror image portion highlights the clear division that God makes between those who follow him and those who refuse to do so. Verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This is a beautiful verse. David is highlighting the fact that God is intimately and protectively and deeply involved in his life. It's, it's a wonderful picture. A picture of God surrounding him. Having his loving hand on him. There's a closeness. There's a love. There's a joy that's expressed in this exclamation. But in the contrast. Verse 19. Oh that you would slay the wicked O God. Oh men of blood depart from me. David desires a time when all the wicked who refuse to follow God are separated from David, separated from the righteous, slain by God and judged forever. That if the hand of grace is on David in verse 5, the hand of judgment is on the wicked in verse 19. Now, 
Again, this is difficult for, under, for us to understand. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. You might think this is a cruel request by David. We want to be very careful to not appear to be more righteous than God is. But keep in mind that God has already revealed in Scripture that this is precisely His intention. David is only praying for what has already been revealed as God's will. Revelation 21 gives the glorious promise of all who have genuine faith in the Lord being with the Lord and us being with one another on the new earth and enjoying new Jerusalem. But what about those who have rejected God? Where are they? Are they your next door neighbors? No. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Abortion activists would divide people into two camps as well. The so-called good people who agree with them and the so-called evil people who disagree with them. Those are the two camps. But only God divides all people into two categories that truly matter. Those he hymns in and loves and has his hand of grace on them. And those that he will judge and separate and have his hand of judgment upon them. Those are the real divisions. Because God never gives privacy, because God knows your thoughts, because God knows your motives, because God divides all people, as we continue working our way toward the center, because God has transcendent knowledge, because God has transcendent knowledge, in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The knowledge of God's character, the knowledge of God's love, the knowledge that God possesses. His thoughts are are too high to reach. You you can't reach them. They're, they're, They're too high above you. But not only that, not only are they too high, they're too many to count. Verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. David is extolling here the transcendent knowledge of God. Psalm 147, verse 5, his understanding is beyond measure. I I love the Apostle John. He's always so direct in 1 John 3, 20. He simply says, God knows everything. By the way, there are no Bible verses that say that God ever learned anything. He's never learned. It's not that God is the smartest person ever and can learn everything. He's always known everything because he's the source of everything there is to know. For anyone making an assertion about abortion as being right, as being good, as being useful, as being a so-called health issue, to say that you know best about this logically means that you have every single piece of information in the universe on the subject. That's not possible. In fact, that's the same logical fallacy uh, for those who say that God doesn't exist. To say God doesn't exist logically means that you're saying, I've been everywhere in the universe and my five senses are, are capable of discerning everything possible. It makes no sense logically. The most illogical thing that anybody can say is that God doesn't exist because there's no way to prove it. In fact, that's why Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The only reliable information we have is that which God chooses to give us in His revelation of Himself. To say that you know better than what God has revealed in Scripture is to say that you know more than God, which is not only ludicrous, not only impossible, but it's the absolute height of arrogance. 
Why does the Christian simply, in the course of reading the Bible, know that the question of abortion is a no-brainer? That it's obvious that life begins at conception and is holy to God? Why do we know this? Why is this not even an issue for the true Christian? Because the Bible fairly breathes this truth out in the normal course of telling the story of redemptive history. It's just just woven in. Because this is revealed information by God who alone knows all. I'll give you some examples. You're reading through the book of Job. And you come across Job chapter 10 verse 10 in which Job says that God, quote, poured me out like milk and curdled me like cheese. And you think, why is Job talking about milk and cheese here? Well, that's an ancient Near Eastern way of speaking of the moment of conception that God poured me out. What does this mean? When Job was conceived, he was a me, not an it. He was a person. Or you're reading in Genesis chapter 25 and you come to verse 22 about the twins in Rebekah's womb and how they fought. The text says, the children struggled together within her. They were children in the womb, just really little bitty ones. You might come across this in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Clearly, God's knowledge of somebody who is a person in the womb. Or we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his conception in the womb. And of course, we read the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke 1.31 that what will be conceived in her by God is a son to be named Jesus. As a matter of fact, a little factoid for you here, we read in Luke 1.44 that the first person ever to rejoice at the presence of Jesus was John the Baptist who leapt in his mother's womb when the two moms were together. The first person to ever praise Jesus was in the womb. Only the knowledge given by God is sufficient because only God has all transcendent knowledge. Because God never gives privacy, because God knows your thoughts, because God knows your motives, because God divides all people, because God has transcendent knowledge, and because God is utterly sovereign. Because God is utterly sovereign. We keep working our way in here. The sovereignty of God, this is a huge idea, and it encompasses the all-knowing nature of God. It encompasses the all-powerful nature of God. It encompasses the all-wise nature of God. It encompasses certainly the all-present nature of God. And we get two major categories of his sovereignty in the next mirror image sections. Now, I'll name these categories here in a moment. The first one, we get two rhetorical questions followed by three rhetorical answers in verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, here are the rhetorical questions. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And then in verses 8 through through 12 or so, we get the answers. And there's three of them. The first answer is, if I fly in the sky to heaven, you are there. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, speaking of the same thing. If I fly in the sky toward heaven, you're there. The second answer, or if I sink to the grave, you're there. The end of verse 8, if I make my bed in Sheol, that's, that's Hebrew for the grave, you are there. Or verse 9, symbolic of the grave, and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea. If, I've, if my body is sunk to the bottom of the sea, you're there. And so if I 
fly in the sky to heaven, you are there. If I sink to the grave, you are there. And the third rhetorical answer, if I'm overwhelmed by darkness, you're there. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What does flying in the sky to heaven or sinking to the depths of the grave or being overcome by darkness remind us of? It reminds us of death. God is sovereign, first category, after your life on this earth. He is sovereign after your life on this earth. That's the first category. But the second category, God is sovereign before your life on this earth as well. He's sovereign before your life on this earth. Look with me at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is picturing God looking at you before you were you. And in fact, planning every single one of your days before they happened. And when was day one? Day of conception. And he already planned it, every single one. We can't comprehend that level of sovereignty, obviously. We can't comprehend that power, that control. That wherever you are in space and time, God is there. There's no running from him. He was there before you were born. He'll be there after you died. Well, we're starting to close in on the climactic high point of the psalm. Let me give you one more fact about God that leads to a logical conclusion. That because God never gives privacy, because God knows your thoughts, because God knows your motives, because God divides all people, because God has transcendent knowledge, because God is utterly sovereign, one more, because God made you. Because God made you. Look at the obvious parallels in verses 13 and 15. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Obvious parallels. Verse 13, God formed your inward parts, literally kidneys, your your organs. Verse 15, God formed your frame, your skeletal structure, or just your body in general. Clear parallel. Verse 13, you knitted me together. Verse 15, you were woven intricately. Verse 13, this happened in your mother's womb. Verse 15, in the depths of the earth. It's symbolic of the mother's womb. Yes, God uses the mechanism of a man and woman in sexual union, but he takes credit for making every single human being. What does this mean? It means that an abortion is not a mother's rightful decision. The baby was made by God. The baby is loaned by God to a mother and to a father. But this is a stewardship, not an ownership. No human being has ever owned a child. God owns them all. Why? Because he made you. Well, now, this sequence of facts about God, this crescendo toward the high point of the psalm, toward the pinnacle, toward the peak, that because God never gives privacy, because God knows your thoughts, because God knows your motives, because God divides all people, because God has transcendent knowledge, because God is utterly sovereign, and because God made you, then, this is what the whole thing points to, then, He has an inherent right to your worship. He has an inherent right to your worship. Verse 14, the psalmist gives worship. I praise you, 
For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He's giving worship. He says, I praise you. This is a word that means to confess. He confesses all that is great about God. And what is it in this case that he says is great about God? That the making of David in the womb in his mother is fearful, means it's awe-inspiring and wonderful. It's miraculous. It's impossible. And his worship is true and sincere. My soul knows it very well. It is the internal part of his heart. The, the inside of his inside of his inside believes with all of his heart that God is his maker. You are to worship God, not as some sort of favor to him. He doesn't need your worship. He has no need of your worship. No, you are to worship God because you already owe it to him. Why? Because he made you. And because he made you, he owns you. And so you have a natural obligation to him. So all these facts about God lead to this inescapable conclusion. God has an inherent right to your worship. It is his right. But I told you I had two twists, two surprises. The first twist, remember we saw that God divides all people. Here's the twist. The division is not pro-life and pro-abortion. That's not the division. Because someday there will be pro-life unbelievers in hell. Why do we say this? Because the standard for salvation in Christ is not to have a correct viewpoint on one issue. The standard is to repent, to be shocked at your own personal sin, to change your allegiance, to change to whom you're loyal, to humbly ask Christ to forgive you. And maybe someone has never participated in abortion atrocities. Maybe you've never been a part of that. Maybe you've been so-called pro-life your whole life. But you've lied, you've stolen, you've lusted, you've hated in your heart, you've been selfish, you've sinned with your mind, you've sinned with your tongue, you've sinned with your actions. And God's standard is that you must be perfect as He is perfect. But you already blew that a long, long time ago, didn't you? When you were a very small child. The twist is that there will be pro-life people in hell under the eternal judgment of God because they did not bend the knee to God in repentance and in humble acknowledgement that they, listen, are no better than the abortionist. Because James 2.10 says, if you have violated one part of God's law, you are guilty of all of it. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, we will rejoice in that. That will be a happy day, but that will not make one more person go to heaven. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change hearts and change allegiances. There's a second twist, and this gets even more hairy. The whole point of this message has been that because of all these facts about God, God has an inherent right to your worship. But here's the twist. I'm telling you, God has a right to your worship. But here's the twist. The unsaved person who must worship God is unfit to do so and God won't receive it. The unsaved person is unfit to worship God and God wants nothing to do with their so-called worship. And in fact, inherent in this psalm is a litany of other facts which make approaching God in worship impossible. It makes being in right relationship with God impossible. What are these facts? Hang on. Verse 1. 
God has already searched you and know you, known you. There's no beefing up your resume. There's no going back. There's no doing good deeds to make up for wicked deeds. You can't undo wicked deeds. You've already done the wicked deeds. Nothing good can undo it. In verse 2, your very thoughts are known to God. What does it mean they're known? It's a word that means a record is being kept. Revelation 20 says the books will be opened and the wicked will be judged by them. What are in the books? The list of everything you've ever done against God. Verse 3, God knows every sinful secret. He's acquainted with all your ways. Not one time have you ever fooled God. Not one time have you ever pulled the wool over his eyes. Not one time have you ever fooled him by your so-called righteous words. Verse 4, even before you sin with your mouth, God knew you were going to. So even if you stop it, oop, the heart already revealed your sin. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? That maybe you believe that at death you'll simply cease to exist or go into some sort of la-la land of eternal happiness that we make up. That's not true. It's a lie. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed to man to die once and then to face what? Judgment. It's instant. It's immediate. The moment you die, there's no relief. You'll simply be alive, not in your body, but you'll be alive and conscious standing before a holy God who you have violated for decades. The verses 13 through 15, God asserts his ownership of you. If you live your whole life as if you belong to yourself, then you have every day of your life stolen from God that which is rightfully his. Verse 19, the unsaved person is part of the group that David is praying for God to slay. The righteous King David has prayed to God to slay you. Verse 20, any attempts at appearing religious or appearing good, any attempts at believing that we're just a naturally good person, that's taking God's name in vain of being a hypocritical pretender. How about verse 23? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. That's courtroom language. Put me on trial. What a challenge to God in verse 24. See if there be any grievous way in me. You have been nothing but grievous ways since the moment you first sinned. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In other words, he will not accept the worship of people like you and people like me. Those who fall under all those condemning facts that I just listed. And you might not think that that's true and you might even say but I'm not all bad sure you might not act as bad as you could but acts of decency and kindness never undo sin they don't pay a price they don't weigh out a scale because those sins still exist you see you don't need your sins balanced you need them removed you are not fit to worship God so what now you must identify with the one who is fit. You must ask the Lord Jesus Christ to trade places with you that he might be seen by God as pure sin and you might be seen by God as pure righteousness. That Jesus, by his death on the cross, might pay the rightful penalty for your sin. That's the only way. And by doing so, you are seen by God now as in Christ, as identifying with Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And now, gloriously, you can finish verse 24. See if there be any grievous way in me 
And in Christ, legally, before God, there is no grievous way in you. Not one. God looks at your heart, which has been traded with the very heart of Christ, and he sees nothing but pure holiness. And now, Romans 8, 1 applies to you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now, in Christ, now identified with the one who can worship God, you can finish verse 24, and lead me in the way everlasting. And this forgiveness is open to all. It's open to all. Yes, to mothers who have aborted their babies. And yes, to abortionists who have murdered thousands upon thousands. The grace of God will not be outdone by the sin of mankind. Grace will always outrun sin. One last thing. This psalm talks about the sovereignty of God, His total control, and and I think we have to address this in our nation alone. What about 62 million murdered babies? What about them? I would take the counsel of Joseph in the Old Testament who told his brothers who had kidnapped him and sold him into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I want to take a couple of minutes and I want you to follow my logic here. This is biblical logic. First part of this logic is aborted babies all go to heaven. Aborted babies all go to heaven. Not because I say so. I don't have any authority. Just very briefly, let me give you 10 reasons aborted babies go to heaven. We put in this category the severely mentally handicapped to those incapable of making moral choices. And yes, all those precious babies who have been lost to... Uh, before uh, birth. Here's 10 reasons. Infants, and we would argue small children and even the mentally handicapped, although they're sinful by nature, have never actively rebelled against God. God will clearly judge the lost based on their actions. Revelation 22.12, an infant, though yes, born under the curse of sin, hasn't yet shaken his fist at God. In Jeremiah 19.4, God calls children killed at an early age innocent. This doesn't mean that they don't have a sin nature. It just means they're not yet capable of rejecting God. There's a second reason all aborted babies go to heaven. God describes children in Deuteronomy 1.39 as having no knowledge of good and evil. They have a sin nature, but while they're automatically drawn to sin, and we all get that, They don't actively seek out and run to sin like adults do. Sin in adults is because we know the truth and we've rejected it. See also Romans 1.18. Infants and small children sin because they don't have the ability to discern right from wrong. That's a massive difference. There's a third reason. God in his mercy can ordain that all in this category are elect. That all the aborted babies are elect. Every one of them. The Westminster Confession of the Faith affirms that belief as well, by the way. Here's a fourth reason, and it's my favorite one, is that infants go to heaven simply because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, infants enter heaven as a matter of free grace with no reference to anything they have done. By the way, all of us enter heaven with no reference to anything we have done. We don't earn our salvation. Here's a fifth reason. Two examples of men chosen for salvation and confirmed before their births. John the Baptist and the prophet Jeremiah. 
There's a sixth reason. We think of the case of King David's baby who died. David said with certainty that he would see his baby again. 2 Samuel 12, 23. This is the response of a godly man confident in God's grace to this child. There's a seventh reason. This is one way that God will ensure that peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation are in heaven. Think about this. Some remote tribe who has never heard the gospel yet has babies die is populating heaven with that very specific tribe of people. Here's an eighth reason. Jesus never, not one time, blessed anyone in open rebellion against God. And yet, Matthew 18 says, Jesus blessed the little children. There's a ninth reason. The major judgment passages of the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, include sins that infants are incapable of, sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, greed, and so forth. Here's a tenth reason. In Ezekiel 16.21, God described the slaughter of children born in pagan families as the slaughter of my children. He claimed them all as his. There's a second part of this logical argument. We know what people in heaven look like. We know what they look like. Did you know that? Revelation 19.8 It was granted to her, that is the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So here's our statement. If aborted babies have all gone to heaven, and if we know what people in heaven look like, then we know when they appear on the stage of the end of redemptive history. Did you know that? Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What mankind meant for evil is precisely what God will use partly to form the very armies of heaven to return to earth to reign with him someday. Those precious little, complete, whole babies found dead near our nation's capital recently, thrown into a trash bin as nothing more than trash. What will they be called in the coming kingdom? Your majesty. We do pray that God graciously decreases the number of murdered children. The government will never restore true righteousness. That is heart work and it must be done by God and God alone. So what do we do in the meantime? We rejoice in God's mercies, but we never, ever make the mistake of those little victories being substituted for the needed power of the gospel. Only the gospel can change. The goal of our faith is not to try to make unbelievers more moral. You can't do that. It is, however, to demonstrate that they are in judicial judgment by God and have need of a Savior. And so if Roe v. Wade is overturned, will we rejoice? Absolutely, it's God's mercy, it's, it's God's kindness. 
but not one more person will be in heaven because of that. You know who's given that responsibility to? To you and to me, to proclaim the gospel so that whatever side of that debate you fall on, you make certain to submit to the Savior. That's the only way. Jesus said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no self-righteousness. There is no fooling God with your words. There's no fooling God with your thoughts. There's no having the right political perspective. There's no falling on the right side of an issue. There's no doing good things to outdo the way thing, the, the bad things because the bad things can't be undone. It is only through Christ who alone can take away your sin whom God the Father put on His back instead of on yours at the cross. I hope that this day that the gospel penetrates your hearts both as a believer to remember why you were saved and how you were saved and as an unbeliever to know that according to the book of Hebrews we get a warning three times. Today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. And Hebrews chapter 10 says there will be a day when God says I am done with you. I will never give you the gospel again and you will die in your sin and you will go to hell. He does not say when that day is. Assume it's today. Assume it's today. And take your last shot because of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are astounded at the clarity of your word. You have made it abundantly clear that you have an inherent right to our worship. And you've given us reason after reason after reason after reason And at the core of all those reasons, the, the most logical and, and, and the, most, the most obvious reason is that you have an inherent right to our worship because you made us. You made us. And we praise you for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that this day, anyone hearing this, either here or online, would bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge that He is not only Creator, but He is Savior. And that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl would bend the knee to Christ and acknowledge that they cannot take away their own sins. Their sins scream against them. Only Christ may take them away. Only Christ may bear the rightful penalty of the wrath of God for sin. We cannot bear it, for it would take all of eternity. We pray, Lord, that this day many would come to faith. We do continue to pray that you would be gracious, that you would reverse wicked laws in our land, and that you would save the lives of many babies, that they might be used of you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.